Hello and welcome back to the Future Work Life podcast and it's a very special edition today because it's a crossover. I also host the Velocity Network podcast which as the name suggests is a podcast discussing all of the innovation happening on the Velocity Network. The Velocity Network Foundation is a non-profit membership organization. It hosts the leading workforce and edtech vendors globally and it's on a mission to build the next generation data utility layer underlying the global labor market. Next week, I'm going to be in New York City hosting Velocity's annual General Assembly, at which members and other participants come together to share their progress, learn from the experience of others, and collaborate. And my guest today is Jeff Schwartz, who's going to be giving the opening keynote on day two of the conference. Jeff has had a long and distinguished career at organisations like PwC, and more recently as the CEO. Senior Advisor on the Future of Work at Deloitte. He is now VP of Insights and Impact for Gloat and a professor at Columbia Business School. In 2021, Jeff wrote Work Disrupted and his new book, in which he's a co-author, is called Workforce Ecosystems. We explore what exactly workforce ecosystems are, how leaders should be thinking about the flexible nature of their organisations in the future and some practical ideas for you to go away and implement in your companies. Within that, we discuss the role of technology, how important it is for leaders and managers to upskill, and of course, we cover the significance of verifiable credentials and the role they're going to play in improving opportunities, both for organizations and for millions of individuals around the world. If you're interested in finding out more about Velocity, you'll find a link to the website in the show notes. There are also some tickets still available for the General Assembly if you'd like to participate. As ever, if you're interested in these themes, do check out my newsletter, Future Work Life. I'll be exploring some of the ideas that Jeff and I discuss in this week's newsletter. So without further ado, here's my conversation with Jeff Schwartz. Well, Jeff, it's a pleasure to speak to you today. I want to start with a broad question, but something related to your new book. I'm really keen for you to explain what you mean by workforce ecosystem. What is it? So, Ollie, it's great to be with you. It, it's a great question. So let me, let me give two uh, definitions or two perspectives on this. So one way to look at it is... Um, for many, many decades, actually, maybe for hundreds of years, when we talked about the workforce, we thought about our employees, the people that are directly employed by our company, by our organization, by a government agency. And one way to think about it, and in a moment I'll give actually a, a definition of what it is, is all the different segments of the workforce that come together in a workforce ecosystem. Obviously, it includes your employees full and part-time. It also includes freelance talent. It also includes every type of open talent. It includes service providers, people that you contract to provide services. An outsourced team would be part of your workforce ecosystem. Um, It includes the role of crowds, how you use crowds and competitions. Um, And it also includes um, a category that we call complementators. Complementators are people that work in some way on your platform for your company and provide services that make your company more valuable. The most obvious example of this are people that create apps that um, or content that are part of, let's say, the Apple or the iOS um, and the Android um, app store. There are many complementators as well. So mm. what we see is a much larger view of the workforce. And for many companies today, that percentage of the external workforce, we might call the employees internal 
these other forms of talent external is growing. It could be between 20, 30%, in some companies, 50%. If you were to ask me for a more academic definition, we have one. This book is published by MIT Press, and the other three authors all have PhDs. Um, I've only got a couple of master's degrees. So the PhDs helped us come up with this definition. And the definition that we use is a workforce ecosystem is a structure, an organizational structure, focused on value creation for an organization. And it consists of complementarities and interdependencies. And the structure encompasses actors both from within and beyond the organization. And everyone involved is trying to pursue both individual and collective goals. So we're seeing, you know, the, the sort of core of this is it's a value creation entity where people participate in different ways in order to meet their personal goals and their collective goals as well. So hopefully those two definitions give a sense as to the sort of the breadth and the nature of what we're talking about when we talk about workforce ecosystems. Yeah, no, definitely. And I think most people would recognize each of those groups in the way you described them, particularly that the nature of the workforce has very much changed. And I think this was clearly this trend was in place before COVID. It's in many cases, as we know by now, accelerated the, um, the, the, the existing trends. And, you know, from, from my own point of view, you know, I was running a business during COVID and we had to just have a more flexible approach to hiring, for example, and that then just changes the nature of the workforce. There are many more interdependencies built between people who would probably 10, 15 years before just have been full-time employees when you've got the, both the opportunity for both parties to create that flexible idea. One thing I do just want to clarify, though, what do you mean by crowds? Well, by, by crowds, I mean, there's a couple of definitions of, of crowds. The definition of One definition of crowds is the use of crowds um, in a couple of different ways. One is the role of crowds in competitions. So um, the strategy that companies have to solve problems by putting uh, a problem out there um, uh, in some digital form and asking people to compete to come up with uh, solutions. Um, you know, one of the more well-known ones uh, was several years ago, I think when Netflix had a competition to develop the algorithm on how to best create recommendations for what would be the next films that you were looking at. Um, mm. That's a crowd. You're not hiring people to develop an algorithm or a recommendation engine. You're saying to the world, we'll pay, I don't remember their amount, you know, $100,000, a million dollars. And if you come up with the winning solution, you get a million dollars. Now, what's interesting right. about that, of course, is you get a lot of teams around the world competing and you got a lot of brain power and effort involved. You don't have to hire hundreds of teams, but yeah. you get the benefit of that. The other view of crowds is one that we see in sort of citizen science. Um, we've seen programs from government agencies and public agencies where um, I think there was one that was developed by NASA a few years ago, where in order to um, identify um, what was going on in the universe or the solar system, I can't remember, it's NASA, the unit of analysis, that people would study uh, publicly available photographs of space, and if they could identify a particular object or a particular type of object, um, they could contribute to the science and sort of to building the knowledge. So there are a couple of different views of crowds out there. There's sort of the public participation view in crowds, and then there's the competition view, and there are others as well. 
Mm. Yeah, it makes me think of X Prize. They're very forward thinking. Of course, we're talking here about edge cases and very forward thinking organizations, aren't we? Yeah, that's a great example. The X Prize is yeah. a great example. Yeah. So, what I'm thinking here is I love talking about these subjects because it just makes me think, you know, there are many, many possibilities of what organizations can and will look like. But I'm just wondering what people's experience on the ground would be. So, that certainly I think we've got used to large organizations particularly, but now it's filtered through to many small organizations too, having lots of contractors. You know, there's that stat about Google, wasn't there? I can't remember the exact number, but let's say almost 50% of their workforce weren't actually full-time employees. They were contractors. So I guess that people are familiar with that. But what about all of these other contributors that you've outlined? Is that is that common on the ground and organizations experiencing this? Or is this you sort of looking forward with your fellow authors to say, look, this is the path we're on? Yeah, so it, uh, it's very interesting to look at the history of uh, workforce ecosystems. Um, I'll, I'll just mention two data points. One is there's a, there's a, a fabulous book on um, the temporary workforce written by Lewis Hyman. Lewis is a professor um, at the Cornell Labor Relations School and Cornell Business School. And Lewis wrote a book um, on the history of the temporary worker, going back to sort of the rise of manpower in similar companies after World War II. And what he points out is that uh, temporary work, um, or from one perspective, uh, contractors, workforce ecosystems, it's actually not a new idea. Um, but uh, with the advent, particularly of internet technologies, the, the cost and the uh, ability to access workers in different with different employment contracts has become much, much easier, right? So I think all these categories have grown. Sometimes when we think about the workforce ecosystem, people naturally go to the gig workers and, and Uber drivers and Lyft drivers and, and DoorDash deliverers and people like that. That, that's part of it, but it really is something that has about a 75-year history. Another piece, and you mentioned uh, COVID. It's hard to not mention COVID as we're thinking about this. One of the more interesting observations I've heard in the last year or two is because so much work was done remotely and in a hybrid fashion, but remotely at the peak of COVID, 50% of the workers who could work remotely were working remotely because we had to. And the question that someone asked, I think it was Diane Gerson, who was the head of IBM's CHRO at IBM and now teaches at Harvard Business School, was what's the difference between a contract worker working remotely and a full-time employee working remotely? And I think that that experience sort of helped us crystallize or think about the notion that work did not have to be associated with a workplace, Right. That mm -hmm. what was really accelerated, and I, I'll use the word again, crystallized during COVID was we began to see the separation of work and workforces um, uh, and workplaces. I think the other piece of this, um, Ali, is that we're seeing not only companies that have a percentage of their workforce that are made up of these segments of the workforce ecosystem. You mentioned Google. I, there are a number of large tech companies where something like half of their employees have one kind of a badge, their employees, and half have another type of badge. There's some type of, of contractor. Yeah. It's a very common phenomenon. This is something we'll hopefully talk about in a few minutes, which is what does it mean to manage a workforce ecosystem 
versus what does it mean to manage your employees. But there are companies, and the, the most common examples we think of are the ride-sharing companies or the delivery companies, but there are tech companies. There's a case study that we talk about in the book, a company called Applause. Applause is a very large global software testing company. Um, if I have the numbers right, I think they have a few hundred employees and they have hundreds of thousands of testers who are part of the talent cloud of the organization. So I think we're seeing these models applied in different ways, um, both at what might be called sort of knowledge work, sort of um, high value knowledge work areas, as well as um, delivery and distribution areas as well. So I think once you start looking for workforce ecosystems, um, it's like a lot of ideas, you see them everywhere. And that was something that was apparent to us as well as we've been doing the research with MIT Sloan Management Review and with Deloitte Consulting, who are the two major parties that were sponsoring and driving the research. Interesting. In a moment, I'd like to dig into some of the component parts of the workforce ecosystem. But I'm really, this is just a subject which really intrigues me. So we talk about leadership and management of this new structure of organization. Now, if you look at a lot of the data, I think what was evident there was that many managers felt they didn't have the skills to manage their teams effectively, even in the old paradigm. So people came into the office and even in that environment, constantly having touch points with their manager, the manager constantly seeing people and having the opportunity to engage in real life, they reported not having the skills. Now we've suddenly evolved into an even more complex workforce in many ways in managing remotely and managing, having to leverage technology to help support their teams. It's got even worse. Many leaders and managers talk about the lack of skills that they have to be able to cope with it. So, of course, what I'm doing is playing this out and thinking, well, as we add layer upon layer of complexity in different categories of um, of worker, but how do people cope with that? Are we just going to completely have to start again and say, look, this isn't just about adding complexity. We need to just completely rethink how we train leaders or just educate them into how to cope with this. Because I can just see people thinking, oh, this sounds interesting, but this sounds even more challenging than my role is at the moment. A great question. And it's an interesting question to me because it really ties together um, uh, the two books that I've written over the last couple of years. Um, I published a book in early 2021 um, called uh, Work Disrupted on um, sort of opportunity growth um, uh, in, uh, in the accelerated future of work. And if I were to summarize that book in one line, which is not easy for an author, <laughs> um, I would use a quote from Albert Einstein, who said that you can't use an old map to explore a new world. And I think the essence of what we um, saw, what we became aware of, cognizant of in, uh, as we were moving through COVID, sometimes we talked about acceleration, but we also saw a shift. And this is what I think your, um, your question leads us to think about, which is um, the mental models, the practices, the management strategies that we've had for hundreds of years have been based on a, a pretty standard model of what work workforces and workplace uh, look like. Um, um, workforces and work and workplaces are all done in the same place. They're actually a, a, an integrated uh, grouping. Um, you teach in uh, a school. Um, you provide healthcare 
um, uh, in a clinic. Um, uh, I mean, these, those are sort of two of the more um, obvious examples. And what we've been seeing is that we've been sort of separating work, workforces, and workplaces. The, the three big questions that we're looking at, at least from my observation, um, and I'll, I'll do them in reverse order and I'll come to workforces at the end. Work, of course, is being dramatically changed as we are using robotics and AI and generative AI um, in order to do work. So the relationship between the work that humans do and the work that technology does is absolutely front and center. And we're redesigning work or reimagining work around that. That's one of the complications, Ali, that we have. Um, we have the workplace challenge, which is we're working um, uh, remotely and in hybrid ways. Literally, um, the week that we're recording this, um, uh, Apple just announced their uh, new sort of metaverse digital um, uh, augmented reality um, solution. I'm not going to make any guesses as to where that market is going, but we are seeing workplace really becoming um, uh, virtualized, hybridized, if I can use that word, works being done both synchronously at the same time and asynchronously. And of course, when we get to the workforce question, um, we're seeing a couple of major changes. The expectations of workers continue to change and shift relatively dramatically. And, and this goes to sort of the research that we started on workforce ecosystems. We actually started our research by looking in 2019 and 2020 at opportunity and talent marketplaces and how mm -hmm. companies were applying market dynamics inside the company to create opportunity and internal mobility. Um, this is really where we started our future of workforce research. It's what drove me when I retired from Deloitte to join Gloat, which is one of the world's leaders in internal talent marketplaces, career marketplaces, and skills foundations. And then um, that dynamic of, of, of market dynamics, if you will, in terms of how people find work and how people find careers and how companies find employees was sort of reframed and expanded from a talent marketplace to a workforce ecosystem uh, market as well. Mm. So what I'm just trying to summarize are sort of three of the big shifts that are going on. Yeah. And I, I could not agree more that this has a major implication on leadership, on management, on culture, on organization strategies, where I would, I'm not, I'm not going to challenge you, Ali, I don't necessarily view it as a complication. I view it as an amazing new set of challenges, which is we have a whole new set of options for how we think about work, workplaces and workforces. And the way I would summarize it to go back to the Albert Einstein quote, if um, we need, if you can't explore, um, if you can't use an old map to explore a new world, if work, workplaces and workforces are disrupted, management needs to be disrupted as well. And that's one of the main themes of our book, which is what happens to talent management? What happens to people management when we move from an enterprise sort of hierarchical, we'll tell you what to do and where to go to a marketplace ecosystem dynamic. And we can talk a little bit about how we're framing those management practices um, and governance practices going forward. Yeah. Well, I like the sound of the opportunity there. I much prefer that than the, uh, the, than the fear. So, well, let's get into it then. So 
Okay, uh, let's give a practical example. Let's take a case where we, an organization is open to reimagining how they think about that and probably not even open to it, but they are forced to because market dynamics and macro dynamics mean that they just have to in order to be able to continue to compete. So where do they start? Yeah, so there are a couple of ways to look at this. One is um, we have a very uh, deliberate framing um, in the research and the book that we've published on workforce ecosystems. And the first is we uh, move from the concept of talent management to workforce ecosystem orchestration. We think there's a difference between management, which is often associated with hierarchy. It's often associated with control and supervision and direction. By the way, all good things for certain types of work and certain types of workforces to orchestration. And orchestration, uh, I think as the word suggests, um, involves um, uh, influence, um, it involves nudges, it involves choice architecture, uh, it involves design in a very, uh, a very different way. So when we look at um, the way we've outlined this, we have sort of four dimensions, if you will, of workforce um, ecosystem orchestration. Um, the sort of the center of it um, are management practices, really talent management practices, and one of the things that we look at in great detail in a couple of chapters in the book is what happens to the traditional view of talent management, attract, develop, retain. That has been our sort of mantra and our core thinking. The employee life cycle is the way that we think of it. Um, what happens in a world where careers are portfolios, where careers are multidirectional? Um, I love this expression, a career looks less like a ladder and a career looks more like a jungle gym. Um, we also have careers, especially today, um, for, for companies out there, and this is everyone, who were recruiting people in their 20s. If you were recruiting people in their 20s, in the 2020s, many of these people will live to be 100 years old. They will live to the year 2100. So one of the questions we're asking, um, and we think that leaders need to ask, but employees and workers need to ask is, what does a 50, 60 year multi-chapter career look like, right? And what happens to attract, develop, retain? And we think it becomes some version of um, access, grow, and connect, right? How do we access talent both inside the organization and across the ecosystem? That's different than recruitment and attraction. How do we grow talent? But how do we grow talent in many, many different directions, mm. including facilitating workers to find directions that meet their passions, their interests, our needs as a business, and also what's going on in their lives, then how do we stay connected to people? Because not everyone will be an employee for life. This is not the world of, you know, you work 35 years and you get a gold watch. We actually tell the gold watch story and work disrupted, which is sort of interesting. Um but we're seeing people come in and out of organizations. We're seeing people have different relationships with the same company at the center of the ecosystem. Mm. You might be an employee and then you might be a contractor and then you might be an alumnus and then you might come in back in as a contractor. So what does that mean for management practices? Um, we then look at technology enablers. What are the different roles of technology and what roles the technology play in workforce ecosystems? We look at something that we call 
integration architectures, which is a way of talking about governance, right? How do we govern workforce ecosystems? How do we govern internal employees and external employees? How do we govern human employees and the work that's done by machines? And how do we do this in a legal framework that actually drives business results? Then last, what does it mean for leadership, which was sort of your question that we started with? How do we lead how do we lead in a world of workforce ecosystems? Um, and what is the role of culture? And we actually have a very interesting um, set of inquiries into culture where some companies um, have a culture for their internal employees and a culture for their external employees. Some companies have a sort of common culture and mission and values that cut across. And some companies have variants um, of the two. So um, pretty much everything about how we orchestrate and manage from the core talent practices to the role of technology, the role of governance, role of leadership mm. um, changes. Yeah. Yeah, I'm fascinated by this. And there's a couple of observations, I suppose, more than questions at this point. We've always had this idea of a customer value proposition. I come from a marketing background and I spent a lot of time with businesses trying to articulate what is that value create for a customer. And then, of course, the employer value proposition idea has become popular as well and widely recognized. But I think there's almost been, because we had that distinction of outward facing and inward facing, they've seemed distinct almost. When there's actually now in this new world, I think these, this, the, everything is so intertwined because, of course, as you say, it isn't just about employees. It's about the people who might come in and deliver a very specific job over a short period of time, but who are just as important to the value creation within the business. And I'm really intrigued, this, as I said, just an observation, just intrigued to see how companies think about this idea and just creating culture which is integrated when you described there that some companies would do treat people differently if they are employees versus contractors that makes me feel strange i'm like oh that's that that seems like a weird approach to to this new world um so that's anyway, a couple of couple of thoughts there but one one question following up on that is to do with learning and development if you if you survey most people within organizations one of their top priorities is learning and growth people want to feel like they're constantly developing they want to feel like they're making progress how do you think leaders and organizations are reconciling the fact that that's so important and yet workers are going to stay with them for a shorter period of time so whereas before you might have got 10 years out of someone and it's worth investing x amount x thousand dollars every year into training them and upskilling them because you're going to get that utility out of it over a long period of time what happens when they're in and out of the door in two years or a year you know how do, how do we think differently about learning skill development well, the whole question, you know, the question of learning and development and skill development is is one of the other, I think, mega shifts that we're in the middle of right now. Um, we've seen literally in the last couple of years uh, a major um, focus on the skills-based organization and the skills-powered organization. And we're seeing this for, for two, at least two reasons, Ollie. And you, you know, my answer all have two or three parts. You've already figured out that that's, that's the way that I think about the world. Um, one is what's happening to work itself, right? And work is being pulled in two different directions. And um, the work of, of um, John Boudreau and, and Ravin Josephson and Sue Cantrell at, at Deloitte, I think really capture this. In one sense, work is being fragmented, pixelated broken down into smaller pieces. Mm. And we're looking at how those pieces can be done 
by either people or machines and what specific skills are involved. Um, on the other side, work is being broadened. Work is becoming more multidisciplinary. It's becoming more project-based and less process-based. But both those things are happening at the same time. Um, so we're, we're trying to figure out how do we keep up with the changing nature of work. And technology, of course, is accelerating both sides of this change, both the fragmentation of work, what can be done by skilled machines and skilled people with machines, and how work is being um, uh, broadened. Um, I think the other thing, and this goes back to the what is a career in the 21st century? Um, the idea that you can learn a trade or a skill or an occupation, and then you can run three decades on that set of skills is an outdated idea, right? It just doesn't work anymore. I think the other thing that is driving the change around learning and development is the growth of worker agency, the desire of people all around the world to have work that provides them with growth and opportunity and purpose and meaning and flexibility. Um, and increasingly, business leaders and public policy leaders are recognizing that we sort of need to organize our thinking around work um, and workforces in this way. It's a major challenge for learning and development because much of learning and development, I'm just highlighting what the shift is. We did talk about reskilling and upskilling um, and career paths for many, many decades, but careers were pretty linear, right? You went from being sort of a finance analyst to a, a, a fi you know, to, a, to a, um, a sort of an assistant finance manager, to a finance manager, to an assistant controller, to a controller. Um, it was a very predictable path. We had training and support for you to do that. Part of what's happening in learning development is that we need for our employees and our workers to go in different directions. We need to provide opportunities. This is really where talent marketplaces comes in, both internally and externally. We need to find ways where if our employees want to go from being in the sales division to the procurement division because they want to work on um, sort of climate and sustainability issues, that they can move and make those changes inside our organization. So how do we bundle learning, internal gigs, internal projects, mentors, so that you can learn and grow in a new direction inside our company? inside um, our ecosystem. And the other piece, I was literally talking with a global company um, yesterday about their frustration with local universities and institutes, their difficulty in getting people who are learning the skills and the capabilities that they need to move as fast as their company um, is moving. So we're seeing some really interesting innovation um, in learning and development. Um, we're seeing micro badges, we're seeing micro training. And again, this is something um, I think maybe of interest to both of us, the role of credentials, the role of how we see sort of what experience you have and how we can verify that becomes important. I would not be surprised if the learning and development landscape, both in corporations and with university and institutes, looks very different in the early 2030s than it does today. Disintermediation is sort of the idea that sort of pops up as a major part of this as well, because um, we're not training people for static, stable, long-term careers. 
it's much more dynamic. The half-life yeah. of skills is moving very, very quickly. So we need a much more dynamic way of skilling and reskilling employees yeah. and workers. Linda Gratton and Andrew Scott talk about the end of the three-stage uh, life to this new multi-stage life. And uh, that really appealed to me, not just because it does seem like a relic of the past, the idea that you'd study for three or four years and then you'd work for, I don't know, 30 years and then that's it's all over, which it sounds a bit depressing to me, to be honest, because uh, <laughs> I, I don't know. But anyway, that's that's beside the point. Um, but the multi-stage life, by definition, what that means is constant learning, constant reskilling, finding different paths into the things, not just that you enjoy doing, but also that there is value in. Because, of course, as we know, one change technology is driving is that the jobs required come and go. Some jobs won't be required because technology can do the job better and some will emerge as complementary and to actually build the technology further. We talked about how we use credentialing to do that. Um, obviously, you're speaking at the Velocity Network Foundation General Assembly in a couple of weeks. That's a community and a movement that's building because it addresses some of these challenges. And I think particularly that you know one of the big issues slash challenges with skills is standardization and that applies to credentialing as well how do we have credentials which people can really trust when things are moving so quickly and how do these various different organizations and the ecosystem from education through to the workforce how do they actually connect in a way which is both verifiable and trustworthy What's your take on that? Because I know that credentialing and verification tech is one of the key components of the workforce ecosystem structure that you lay out in the book. Yeah, I, I, these, again, this is a great question. I, I think there are, again, I'm going to use the same frame. There are two sides of this. So when we look at a skills-based workforce, it's both skills, and I'll talk about credentials and verification, uh, but we're also moving into a workforce in a world where work is both skills-based and interest and aspirations-based. Hmm. Um, I think it's very important, uh, I find it very important to think about um, the, inst- the um, aspiration and the intent part of this as well. It's also the human part of this, right? I mean, humans have aspirations. Humans have the intent, the desire to do different things. We are not linear creatures. We, we want to go in different directions for all sorts of personal and professional um, mm. and, and communal reasons. Um, and, and so one of the things we're looking at is how do we provide people with as much opportunity so they can exercise their agency as they can? Um, so part of that is, is giving people, um, and this is where the marketplace mechanisms come in, the internal talent markets, career markets, so people can find opportunities both inside and outside their organizations. Um, sort of one uh, idea that comes to my mind, one of the statistics that we've seen over the last sort of half a dozen years, both research I did at Deloitte, uh, starting with Josh Burson and then at Gloat, is that most employees tell us and workers tell us that it's much easier for them to find and move to a new role or a new job in an organization outside their company than inside their company, Um, which is the economist in me tells me, a market failure. So Hmm. one of the things we're trying to do is encourage internal mobility and external mobility. But in order to do this, we need to understand what the skills are that people have. Um, And one of the more interesting chapters in our book, Workforce Ecosystems, 
is we look at sort of five different dimensions that technology plays in workforce ecosystems. There's work tech, all the technology we uh, use to do our jobs. Think of the tools for digital surgery, an Excel spreadsheet, a calculator. These are tools that we use to give ourselves sort of amplified powers. There's workplace tech. I don't have to talk about that very much. We're, you know, we're recording this on Google, Google Meets. We use Zoom. We use Teams. We use um, the HoloLens. We will use this new Apple um, augmented reality uh, technology that changes the workplace. Workforce tech, um, obviously, we've been talking about um, some of that has to do with what's happening in internal marketplaces, career marketplaces, um, et cetera. Um, and then we also look at what does it mean when technology is actually a participant in the workforce? What happens when we issue employee badges to technology, which we've already been doing for years in order to make RPA work? We've had to give SAP and enterprise software licenses to our bots so they could access our systems. Hmm. But, but this fifth area of credentialization and verification tech is a very interesting one because it's one that exists among and between the individual, the educational and certifying institutes, enterprises, and the ecosystem itself. And um, uh, it, it was fascinating when we were doing this research. Uh, we spoke with George Gurevich. We spoke with the people who are developing Smart Resume. We spoke with a number of others. We've identified the need for this credentialization verification layer, which obviously is what Velocity Network talks about, as absolutely essential to this. Um, and there are different ways of doing it. Obviously, the way that um, I understand Velocity Networks is doing it is through a blockchain that in many ways is democratized. It really gives power um, uh, to the individual. And in the same way, I mean, I have an Apple wallet today and whenever I get on a plane, tomorrow I'm getting on a plane to fly to um, Chicago, I put my ticket um, into my um, wallet. I think we're going to find very, very quickly, and I am hearing this from companies around the world, that they are thinking about how do they connect their internal marketplace strategies and their ecosystem strategies with credentialization strategies as part of the next step. So this is something I put in this category, Ali, where in some ways we feel like we're in the early days and the early years of credentialization verification. By 2030, I think we're all going to have a wallet on our portable device or on our watch or whatever the right, whatever the right technology is um, that we will use to share uh, verified credentials, both credentials that come from our employer and the workforce that we're working with, but also from any third party that is issuing some sort of a, a credential or verification, either for learning or skill or proficiency or experience. Great. Jeff, you strike me as an optimistic chap. Um, I have uh, a final question for you. Looking forward, I mean, you know, of course, the exciting thing about this stuff is that it's emerging and it can go in many different directions. And there'll be many, there'll be things that we haven't yet thought of, and there'll be applications of the ideas that you've shared in your book and we discussed today in in ways that we haven't yet conceived. I'd be really interested to hear what you're most excited about. What new possibilities are unlocked by what we've discussed today? Yeah, so it's interesting that you you observed my optimism, and I am optimistic. I Hopefully, I bring a lot of energy to um, the discussion. And 
there's a couple of thoughts maybe we can uh, briefly talk about as, as we're closing. One comes from our research and one comes from an observation uh, from an interview I did a couple of years ago. One of the things that we looked at in our research, and because we've uh, been doing this research for four years now, again, with MIT Sloan Management Review and Deloitte Consulting, um, we identified uh, through the research that we did, the surveys we did, we've done surveys every year, four or 5,000 people around the world, a category that we call intentional orchestrators and non-intentional orchestrators, right? So people who recognize that we are in a world of workforce ecosystems and, and people that recognize that um, do things differently. Um, they explicitly think about internal and external workers. They're more likely to align workforce skills and requirements to the strategy and the emerging um, uh, strategy. They're more likely to incent managers, as we talked about earlier, to think about both internal and external workers, both um, their employees and then the broader ecosystem. One of the things that makes me optimistic is that the companies that are intentional orchestrators, which in our research was about one out of eight companies that um, we, we uh, surveyed, um, were more likely to have much better results. Um, they were six times more likely to have a culture that integrated external workers into um, their organization. Um, they were more likely to involve multiple functions in the orchestration. So they didn't just have HR or procurement do it. They had others do it. Um, they were more likely to have better performance of their overall workforce because they were intentional orchestrators. They were more likely to use technology in the different ways that we've been talking about. So the data supports the optimism, but the optimism here is better results for the employees and the workers and better results for the company. Yeah. The, the last comment I'll make is, uh, maybe it's the last comment I'll make, I'll let you decide, <laughs> is um, I'm going to go back to this interview I did with Lewis Hyman, uh, this professor at Cornell. And in the interviews we did probably three years ago, we asked Lewis um, to tell us what he thought the trends were going to be around the gig worker, the independent workforce, the temporary workforce. Um, and he had a wonderful answer to this. And he said, there are a couple of ways of looking at it. He said, are you asking me what the trends are? Because I can tell you what the trends are. But the more interesting question is not what is driving the future. The more interesting question is how we want to shape the future. Given the trends that we see, whether it's generative AI or increased agency or a more global workforce or more hybrid and remote work, um, what are the things that we would like to do as business leaders, as talent leaders, as individual workers, as members of communities and as citizens? How do we want to shape the world going forward? Right. It's not just a question of what are the trends and where are they driving us? So yeah. one of the reasons our op I am optimistic is if we are aware and deliberate about the future that we're shaping, we're more likely to get a future that will reflect what we actually want. So we need to create our own optimism. We need to create our own futures. And I think that's why this next few years is so exciting. As you said a few minutes ago, there are a lot of challenges here that we have. It's becoming more complex. One view of these challenges and one view of this complexity is what do we do with it? How do we shape it in a way that it works for us 
as humans, it works for us as families, it works for us as communities. Um, we're not going to stop the technology trends. I'll let other people argue about that. But how we shape them can be a source of optimism. Absolutely. Yeah, no, look, a rallying call to participate. I think that's a great way to wrap things up. Well, look, Jeff, pleasure to meet you properly today, discuss these really fascinating ideas. And I'm looking forward to meeting in person in New York in a couple of weeks' time. I'll see you at Cornell Tech. It'll be great. Thanks, Ollie. So that was my conversation with Jeff Schwartz. Thank you very much for listening today. As I said at the beginning of the show, for more on subjects like this, check out my newsletter, Future Work Life, and do go to the Velocity Network website to find out more about the Internet of Careers and how you can get involved. 